welcome to episode number 63 of the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. On today's show from California, Jennifer Molidor. Jennifer Molidor is Senior Food Campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, helping to lead the sustainable food initiatives, including the Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaign. Her recent article titled Creating a Just Food System that Protects People, Wildlife, and the Environment is what we're talking about today. Thanks for being here, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And all the work you're doing, it's so great. So um, before we get into the article, I was listening to a YouTube or a video that you had where you had talked about what we've learned, sort of a look back through the last year and a half. And what have we what have was being revealed about the mainstream food system? Yeah, so the COVID-19 outbreak really reinforced what we already knew, but it just kind of shone a spotlight on it, how the consolidated power in the food industry, particularly the meat industry, really puts people's lives at stake and it puts our planet at stake um, in terms of the environment and even national food security, both for Canada and North or United States. So we learned about the weaknesses in our supply chains too, you know, it made it dramatically clear how we are at risk, we're vulnerable due to industry actions that cause habitat loss and deforestation, and sort of break down these safety barriers between human animals and wild animals. But we also learned about the supply chain breaking down. I think we're really seeing that now. And so, for example, um, the slaughter supply chain breaking down. You know, a lot of environmental organizations don't necessarily take on the slaughter work, and it's not pleasant to think about or talk about, but it's a really big source of environmental degradation. So when the supply chains were breaking down, animals were grown beyond their slaughter weight, and so they wouldn't fit in the machines, the industrial scale of machines, and they wouldn't make it in time. So what happened was a process that was euphemistically called depopulation, um, where, you know, farmers were needing to slaughter animals on site, and this kind of is horrible to talk about and think about, but it just... It's, it's done by mass gassing, um, direct shooting, for example, and just this horrible atrocity that's very traumatic um, for everyone involved and this just terrible suffering of animals, killing millions and millions of farmed animals, sort of um, shown a light on all of the things that are already happening. And then so the disposing of them, the burying of them, which can contaminate the soil and the water table and all this sort of done in 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 secret, you know, there's not a lot of public transparency about where they were and how much and what the pollution was and, and tracking that environmental harm and so forth. So we're thinking about the supply chain now for Christmas and that kind of thing. But in terms of animal agriculture, there's a really dark side to the breakdown of these sort of industrial scale supply chains. So that's just one of the things that the pandemic kind of illustrated for us. Well, and it's important to shine a light on that. You know, I think that uh, especially if people are consuming those products, to so think about what that slaughter process is. Uh, you know, we, we look at these packaged pieces of animal and uh, don't really connect it to an entire animal and an entire li- lifespan and these machines that you mentioned that they have to fit into and transport and all of that. Um, so in... And, I, in terms of the supply chain breakdown, I mean, I see that it's happening. I see that there's empty shelves again right now. And, but I, you know what? I don't really get what, how is that happening? Can you explain to us kind of how that's happening? 
No, we're at this industrial scale, right? So we're not um, a system that can function with regional sort of um, food hubs. And that's one of the directions that we need to go to, right? So this industrial level, global sourcing, um, particularly of animal agriculture, just makes no sense. You know, there's this really great meme of like, um, transportation with two trucks passing each other on the road with timber, right? And it makes no sense where they're chopping down trees from one place to take it to the other place. They're chopping down trees from that place to take it to another place and so forth. Um, it's just sort of a joke, but it's actually very realistic in terms of how our system functions. And then when that comes to food, similarly, it also just doesn't make sense. And it's not a climate resilient system as I think we're gonna see increasingly. So focusing on communities and regional hubs for the food system, as well as other systems, it's probably gonna make a lot more sense. And it's gonna be something that we need to do to be climate resilient. I see. Okay, so in even things like beans, I guess, that they're being grown in one part of the country and then shipped over to another part of the country to be processed and that kind of thing. So you're saying more decentralized uh, local agriculture rather than this big global centralized thing. Right. Decentralizing is going to be very important for the survival of, um, you know, thriving ecosystems as well as human communities. Right. And then in terms of, um, so you, you wrote about this, uh, the, um, this um, event that happened, the United Nations Global Food System Summit. So, you know, uh, on the surface, what, what were they saying that they were going to do, accomplish? And then but what actually uh, is going on in, at that place and like COP20, whatever we're at, COP26, like, you know, there's these big, again, these big kind of global corporate events that sound really great. Oh, they're going to take care of everything. But in fact, you're kind of, you're saying, no, that's not our solution either. Well, one of the problems with the UN Food Systems Summit is that the wrong people were invited. And I think that's true of COP26 as well, where they're focusing on fossil fuel industry uh, speakers and the Food Systems Summit, you know, invited like agribusiness and they focused on that to the detriment of small farmers and um, more just um, food system initiatives and that kind of thing is really left out. And it's it feels kind of ominous for the future and certainly isn't going to solve a lot of the problems. You know, it, it's not there's a disconnect between um, the solutions that are being proposed and that are coming from the very people that are causing the problems that we're trying to solve. And you know, it's a, it's a failure to see the bigger picture, the interconnections, the exploitation of the capitalist system, of the former colonial system, um, of agribusiness systems, of industrial scale systems, of animal agriculture and the exploitation of humans and wildlife and people and, you know, uh, farmed animals and so forth, communities. And, they're being left out. They're they're not being brought to the table. So what you saw with the UN Food System Summit um, was protests. People are not coming. They they're refusing to come. Um, and those are probably the people we need to listen to most. So it's a little bit frustrating to see some of the things going on um, at the UN Food Summit as well as COP twenty six. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I worked with um, poverty issues for a, a long time and published a street newspaper and learned a lot about uh, the diversity that, that there is out in the streets, just the variety of different people and different solutions that they have and how creative they are. And then 
And then, you know, but politicians and kind of community leaders, well-intentioned, they would get together and they would say, well, we should do this for them and we should do this for them, but not inviting those very people into the room. And they used to say nothing, they would say, they still say nothing about us without us. So like, just invite us in here, what we have to say. We have, we're the ones living with the problem. We have the solutions. So it sounds like kind of a similar thing, like the people who are actually the small scale farmers and and the local agri agriculture people are are not being invited to share their opinions about how food systems could work better. Is that right? Yeah, one of the problems is you're inviting the exploiters, right, to lead the conversation about the solutions. So massive industrial scale corporate profits, agribusiness and agrochemical companies are not going to be the ones who are invested in communities and justice because they profit from the injustice. So the solution to the problems in North American farming, for example, um, often they just look at one piece of the problem without trying to understand the bigger picture or how the moving pieces are interconnected, you know, trying to solve, for example, a carbon offset or a carbon sequestration without thinking about biodiversity or the community that lives around this or how an intact ecosystem works or how this affects wildlife or how this affects you know, land ownership and the community functioning as a whole, families, and do women own the land? Do people of color own the land? How is the land being shared? How is this sustainable long-term? These kinds of things are not at the bottom line profit margins for agribusiness. And so trying to find a solution from them is really not in the best interest of most people. Hmm. And and what is, like, what do you see that the, they're, they're the profiting from injustices that they are also involved with creating. What is the role of agrochemical industries in, in food production? Can you give us some examples of the kind of things you're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, for example, um, agri agribusiness, agrochemical companies own was it 94% of the, the seeds, something like that. And we're going to have a hard time um, growing food in the future without seeds, right? So, um, you know, from pesticides, you know, so on and so forth, what they're doing is harming wildlife. So for example, 90% of U.S. waters and fish are contaminated with pesticides. And studies found um, something like 200 chemicals in the blood of newborn human babies. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Um, animals like the California condor, green sturgeon, the detached slender salamander, polar bear, all different types of animals. Toxic chemicals increase cancer, uh, they cause reproductive problems, health problems, um, they you know, disrupt uh, natural hormone cycles and so forth in fish and wildlife, but also in humans, right? Um, and it's also affecting pollinators. So like the American bumblebee, we often talk about the honeybee, but we need to talk about the native American bumblebee. Um, their pollination powers have nourished our ecosystems and sustained crops and something like more than a third of the crops that we grow for consumption, human consumption are really not possible without pollinators. So again, you know, if we wanna be climate resilient, if we wanna survive into the future, we wanna continue our cultural traditions and how we grow food, we need to make big changes fast and limit pesticide use. So again, turning to the agricultural, the agrochemical companies is not the smartest thing to do. 94% um, of our seed varieties have disappeared. Three to four corporations 
own 50 to 75% of the world's seeds and pesticides, and it's getting more and more consolidated. Um, there, people are suspecting that eventually, and not too far down the road, it's going to become like one company, sort mm-hmm. of having all these other little companies, but one company dominating the global food supply. And, you know, if you think about that in terms of national food security, or who decides who, who eats what, who can grow what, cultural food sovereignty issues, that's actually quite um, terrifying. And it's something that we need to break up. These monopolies in the meat industry and the monopolies in the agrochemical uh, industry need to be broken up right away. It hurts everybody, the planet, it hurts you know, wildlife, it hurts workers, it hurts communities. Yeah, the idea of putting all our food security into the hands of corporations doesn't uh doesn't it doesn't sound like food security at all to me so as consumers what can we do as consumers i guess we can not uh give them our money with our food purchases i suppose yeah there's this tension between individual action and large-scale action you know there's i'm seeing people kind of argue well it you know the only thing that matters is systemic change and we have to just fight for that um, and then other people are saying, no, individual change is really important too. And it's very clearly both, right? One drives the other. We need to take actions. We need to fight for policy changes, but also relying only on policymakers to save us. It's just sort of not going to work. So we're going to need to get active in our in our communities, growing sustainable food, you know, building grassroots movements like this, um, creating a, a rumbling to the system. And really focusing on, for example, um, agroecology movements like this that do try to combine the intersections of of a thriving human community that can coexist with wildlife and nature, um, that takes nature and ecology into consideration in terms of how we're farming and doesn't act like we can just come along and extract from the earth with no consequences Uh, or that that's somehow a lifestyle that we want to move to in the future. So moving towards this as individuals, as communities, is where it's going to start because we cannot rely on politicians. But at the same time, we also have to fight very hard for political change, policy change. And if the UN and COP26 isn't going to do it, we're going to need to come up with a different solution um, because we are... You know, in the situation where these calls, these warnings have been for decades, this is nothing new, right? The injustices certainly are nothing new. And we get promises of tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. And here we are today, and we're going to run out of tomorrows. We don't act soon. So the solution is not simple, but we definitely need a multifaceted approach that incorporates nature, wildlife, farmed animals, farming, humans, human justice, and really include justice in that. So we don't come up with solutions that are a lot of greenwashing. A lot of uh, what's coming out of the USDA, for example, is big and it's uh, voluntary benchmarks and it's um, it's disastrously um, in denial. For example, um, the USDA had Tom Vilsack, for example, at COP26 or during COP26, you know, said that the U.S., for example, does not need to reduce meat consumption in order to fight climate change. 
which is stunning considering that the U.S. is one of, the, I think, the top two meat consumers in the world and consumes three times the global average of meat. So relying on him to save us isn't going to work. And we need to um, push hard for the solutions that we need. But justice needs to be a part of that. And climate justice needs to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's not like there is any lack of science showing us the impacts of animal agriculture on all scales and on the environment. And it's interesting that you mentioned that it's not a new problem. But you know what, I'm old enough to remember a time before Monsanto, like, I, you know, Monsanto, when Monsanto came on the scene, it was a real game changer, the whole idea of genetic engineering. I mean, we knew uh, that farmers would sometimes create hybrid crops from seed splicing, but the idea of kind of industrialized um, genetic engineering on seeds and then, you know, hearing Vandana Shiva sending out signals of warning us that this is where we're going to end up for decades now, right? So, so it's an old problem, but it's also kind of a, it's not that old really. And maybe, I mean, I think part of the agroecology is also turning to like elders in, and um, indigenous folk who have memories of how to do this differently, right? Yeah, um, we, you know, have this thought, I think, here in the United States, where we believe that we are somehow superior to the rest of the world in everything that we do. Um, and that includes farming. And then within the United States, that white people, non-native people somehow have, you know, this modernized technology and technical solutions and that are superior, you know, in terms of farming and producing food. And it's just not true. There are places around the world where we're seeing like the climate justice movement is being led by the global South, for example, um, agroecology principles that take nature into consideration, both in North America and far beyond it, consistently and traditionally and currently led by indigenous peoples. So for example, with agroecology, to regenerate the soil, waterways, watersheds, ecosystems, human communities through food, the foodways and the wisdoms behind these principles, totally rooted in indigenous knowledge, you know, today. And so there's even co-opting going on, like um, this regenerative agriculture movement, right? Like this is inherently part of indigenous knowledge. And so, yes, turning to elders, um, listening to other people, including storytellers in this, you know, the traditional food ways in, in terms of our solutions, but bringing these people to the table is also really, really important. And then also being able to recognize when this is being co-opted. So even like regenerative agriculture, for example, um, these practices that are in theory good are being co-opted by chemical companies and big meat companies. They're trying, for example, to turn regenerative grazing um, into this climate solution. So we need more cows, so that's gonna solve everything, that we can just sequester carbon and you know, kiss the soil or whatever the documentary is. Um, and there isn't really science to prove that. And what is really going on is that it's being used to continue business as usual. And that's what we're seeing across the board and that is not what we need. Um, we need you know, farming that listens to people who have been coexisting with biodiversity for tens of thousands of years and continue to coexist with the majority of the biodiversity and get away from extractive 
systems and, and so forth. And we also need to avoid, you know, the greenwashing still, you know, I mentioned before from the USDA, for example, rather than come up with regional food hubs, incorporate indigenous knowledge, you know, um, incorporate justice and land back movements and debt forgiveness and, you know, um, increasing equity in terms of land ownership with, for example, black community, rather than those types of solutions, justice and equity driven solutions or solutions that are formed through agroecology and taking, you know, intact ecosystems into the sort of consideration and big picture of living with nature. They're coming up with solutions like potty training cows as a way to reduce methane, right? Methane is, um, U.S. methane from animal agriculture is the leading source of U.S. methane. And methane is like 86 times more potent um, in the short term than carbon. Methane is a big problem. So rather than, for example, um, our leadership in the United States coming out and saying, like, we're, we're going to have, you know, commitments from this industry that's going to involve meat reduction, which is the largest source of methane. What they're saying is we don't need to reduce meat and instead we can put masks on cows, feed them things that make them less burpy, you know, emit less methane and potty train cows. And that's not a big picture solution. It's also like there's that disconnect of thinking if you can potty train a being, if they're sentient enough to potty train, the mass consumption of them and the exploitation of them and the, the ways that they're treating is probably horrific as well, right? There's that disconnect as well. But in terms of methane and climate solutions, rather than reducing the source of the emissions, they're just finding ways that are frankly ridiculous to look at one tiny little piece of the problem and not the bigger picture. So that sort of narrow tunnel vision is one of the one of the obstacles to progress, I think, to get us out of this mess. Right, because I mean, it's not just the cows, it's all the chemicals that go into the production of the food, the massive amounts of land and the water resources and all the rest of it, right? I mean- Yeah, the manure pollution, you know, what the impact on the soil, the, you know, deforestation, the, you know, shooting of wolves on behalf of cattle or shooting bison, you know, yeah, they, this, this inability to take in consideration how the pieces work together is where we're failing and we're going to continue to fail if we do that. And so a lot of people are calling for like, can we please bring all of these conversation together into a solution? And with the leadership that we have right now, I don't see that happening. So something else is going to happen. It's true. It's true. But is there any leadership that has ever done anything differently? You know, like there's a, a vegan mayor in New York City, I think now, is it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I, I don't I'm just I think it, there's this there's this monetary connection um, between governments and these industries. Right. And mm -hmm. um, probably lots of you know, golf course conversations and clubhouse uh, parties and that sort of thing. Like, I just see these, the industry and government as sort of, they're so friendly that unless you get some vegans in there to kind of raise these conversations, 
Um, and there, I don't see any motive. If people are, and if people are personally invested in eating animals, they're, they're also really resistant to trying to find these other solutions or, or even admitting that eating animals is the problem. Yeah, I think that would be very helpful, of course, as a beginning. And I think that there are a number of other people that we can bring into the conversation that may or may not be vegan. And I think that will be helpful as well, because I think, you know, in my work where I've talked to people, even some of the people who are in the farming industry, even some of the ranchers, even some of the ag scientists, if you really listen to them, some of them are saying like we need to, we need to back away from this or we need a, a new system or we need to eat less animals. Like, you know, they'll admit that uh, they'll continue their work, of course, but uh, there's that small opening there, or as I said, you know, working with tribal communities um, and their traditional food ways, which may or may not include, you know, some animal consumption, at least they're making some of the connections, right? There's, they're understanding that they don't want to be part of the exploitation. They're understanding that power over land and power over people and power over agriculture, exploitation from extractive capitalists is not going to um, help us survive in the future, it's certainly not going to help us thrive in the future. So I think there are openings for people who are recognizing that they really want their community to do well, that it is there's more to this than just profit. And so those are the openings. Um, having conversations at the community level as well, you know, we're trying to do like, for example, climate related food commitments from cities and municipalities and county level. And even there, there's so much lack of knowledge about the connection between food production and climate change. So these cities will, for example, have climate action plans or even food action plans. Have climate action plans will set a target for emissions reduction. And then we'll come along and say like, look, that beef out of your city procurement, your city menus, your dining halls, your senior centers, your hospitals, your jails, whatever, you could almost meet your emissions reduction just by getting beef off the menu, just by committing to not purchase beef. Um, or you could do that by doubling your veggie options or you know, cutting the meat that you purchase in half. And it just doesn't make sense to them. There's a real disconnect there too, between this idea that there's some sort of land out there outside of the city where food is produced and then that's their problem and then the city's emissions don't have anything to do with that but really the menus and the food that we purchase um, anywhere whether we're private individuals or we go to or we go to an institution those menus are informative they influence policy they derive from policy they reflect policy and so that procurement or purchasing or menu policy and the footprint of those menus is very impactful. And we need to make that connection between food emissions, carbon and methane and so forth, the greenhouse gases and city and state and federal level um, procurement policies. And this is true, at, you know, even in your workplace, right? Your workplace can commit to certain menu policies, um, you know, restaurants, zoos, aquariums, so forth. These kinds of commitments would be really, really helpful to reduce the impact that we're having on the earth and not just for climate, you know, this will trickle down or whatever. It will branch out to a better system that supports different types of 
food um, production, different types of, you know, growing vegetables, for example. Um, but then we have things like COP26, where they sent out menus ahead of time that was like, well, you know, that it's better, right? There's some plant-based options on there because we've been pushing for that each year, every year, year after year for them to take animal agriculture seriously since, you know, agriculture is um, a third of the global emissions and animal agriculture is half of that, something like that. It's time to take that seriously. So this year they sent out menus ahead of time and we're looking at them thinking, well, it's hopeful. It's not what we want, but it's hopeful. But then it turned out that the actual menus that they were serving were something else, you know? So first of all, it's some, it, was, it was about half, half were plant-based, half were like local haggis, oh. a low footprint, you know? And so this time the menus, they include carbon footprint after each item. And so you could see the plant-based options have a very small carbon footprint. The meat-based items, particularly the beef or the haggis, had a very high footprint. But the question is, first of all, why even serve the high carbon ones at a climate conference, right? And then, yes, your menu is 50-50, but how many people are choosing the low carbon option, right? So again, why offer the high carbon option? 25, 30,000 people are attending this conference, eating meals every day for a couple of weeks. That's a huge footprint, right? And just in terms of leadership and modeling, there's that. But on the ground, we heard from people and they said it's actually very hard to get those plant-based options. So waiting in line, they get to the front, they weren't there, tracking this down, that kind of thing. So still, it's just like a you know, you want to wring your hands because it's just it's just a disconnect. But far worse than even this is the fact that animal agriculture wasn't on the menu in terms of policy solutions. It just wasn't even something that they agreed to or talked about or invited or, you know, it wasn't part of the discussion. And to leave out this enormous portion of the global emissions, you know, creation is just um, alarming and disappointing and frustrating, but it shows us like how much work we have to do and that we can't necessarily turn to them for those solutions. It's gonna to have to be on the ground level, grassroots activism, community level, neighborhood level, um, because we just cannot rely on the global north driving these solutions. The global south of this conference was, was pushing hard and they had to make a lot of concessions and it really was a heartbreaking um, experience, I think, for a lot of people. And the, the walk away, from it really is that everybody's supposed to come back next year and make stronger commitments. And we hope that's possible, but we need to turn up the pressure this year as much as possible. Needs to focus on agriculture, menu needs to be part of that. And we need to come at this from a point of view that considers all the, the intersections that we've been talking about and not just sort of potty training cows. <laughs> right. What a waste of energy that is. Um, and yeah, I mean, if I was organizing this conference, I, I would have like how to be a healthy vegan workshops for these folks as well. And, um, you know, and talk about not only the environmental implications, but we're in the middle of a global health crisis, you know, how much healthier we can be and how much stronger our immune systems are when we eat a whole food plant based diet. So 
lots of work there to do. I wonder if you've heard about the plant-based treaty that Anita Crines and the SAVE movement are promoting at various levels, all levels of government, and then they were they had a presence, uh, I guess, outside the COP26. Um, yeah, I don't know too much about this. I, I've seen some important people um, signing on to this, and, you know, I, I, it sounds good to me. If it's going to make some headway, then I'm all for it. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, we need um, energy and grassroots advertising like that. There's a lot of times where treaties will be signed, commitments will be made, which is hard enough to do. And then there's no uh, follow up. Mm-hmm. So we have the follow up as well. And we need to see actual actual change. I'm all for things that, that raise awareness like that, though. And the intersections, as you're saying, of health and the environment, a healthy environment, healthy people, healthy nature, it all goes together. Yeah, yeah. I think one one of the places where I take some hope um, with the plant based treaty is they're getting it into um, city councils, you know, mm-hmm. and local municipalities. And it's a, it's a document then. It's and it has apparently there's all they have all like a hundred or sixteen different ways you can change your school and twenty five ways you can change your workplace and that kind of thing. So there, it's a really sort of yeah. We need need more of that because like I'm saying, you know, even just today, we're talking about some frustrations with the Berkeley City Council and why they're not moving forward on on what we're calling for a resolution for plant-based food and reducing uh, red red meat, for example. And this is something I found with other cities as well, is that they're really focusing on infrastructure, energy, you know, building walls to prevent sea level rise, things like this, and homelessness and the COVID crisis. And they're not seeing how these things are interconnecting. They'll talk about air pollution, for example, but they won't see the relationship with food. So yeah, the treaty is great. We need things like this to raise awareness and education. So people make a connection, not only between food and the environment and health and whatever, but because all of these interconnections need to be brought in conversation with each other. But I still am really finding municipal work very frustrating. Um, If people want to do something in their communities, some of the things that I recommend would be to build community alliances and groups and make it very clear to your city council members, your board of supervisors, you know, if you have that in Canada, but, you know, your representatives locally, basically, um, that you want these commitments. And here's an example If the plant-based treaty is going to be an example. There's, it's quite a few things like that. There's a there's a default default veg option, for example, which shows cities how to uh, work with menus so that you know plant based foods are the norm and people can request something else. But this is just sort of across the board the norm without even necessarily drawing attention to it. Here's a, a whole bunch of delicious menu items, for example. So commitments to that or a commitment to like 20% emissions reductions via food, for example. These are all great. We need so much more education. But on the other hand, as you said, the science has been there for a long time. The information has been there. So it's kind of a combination of people not making the connection, people not understanding their emergency, and then also needing some education. But then, of course, also the resistance, you know, the this is not a priority. Like this, this is often seen as a sort of a niche boutique issue like people want plant-based foods you know that's your preference but no really it is people want healthy communities people want humane communities people want communities that can feed themselves in 10 to 20 years and so 
they're just not quite getting that message. I'm all for anything that helps them get it. I'd be nice if the media and uh, entertainment especially were to, every time uh, veganism is mentioned, maybe not make fun of it or pretend like the food we eat is only grass or plain tofu. I mean, they, it seems it's, it's almost as if they, they don't know that we live the healthiest lifestyles and we eat the most delicious variety of food and we have the healthiest gut microbiomes. And it's, you know, I wonder about the the influence of big ag and big pharma on, on the media and not just commercials, but content. Um, is that something you guys look at at all? Oh, for sure. You know, you mentioned commercials because I'm sure you know as well that the, the money that the industry gets to do advertising, right? So that we normalize consumption of meat with this abundance of advertising, sure. Um, yes, the, the media, that large block, um, is frustrating for sure. You know, I'm thinking even just for climate, the way that they'll allow this sort of messaging about net zero by 2050, being a solution, um, it's just climate insanity. That's not a solution. It's not zero. We don't need. We need more than zero. And certainly by 2050, we're going to be beyond this, right? We're going to be in uh, real hot water by 2030. So, anyway, they allow this messaging to go on. And then recently, there was something. Was it? Well, I won't say the name, but it was one of the major outlets where they were saying, "We're just not sure if plant-based meats." Are better environmentally than you know traditional meats we just don't know and that's nonsense we do know and so in you know responsibility in reporting um isn't necessarily there there's a lot of hogwash so to speak out there that is um distorting knowledge and yeah, sure. You know, giving vegans a hard time. And, you know, we have, there's a lot of documentaries out there that are, that are trying to work with that. And documentaries seem to be very influential. People are emotional beings. And documentaries can tell stories the way that newspaper articles can't. A lot of people are busy. They only read the title of the article. The documentaries you can sit down and watch and it can move you emotionally and you can see things visually and it just really tells different stories. So in terms of a vegan movement, I think documentaries have been very influential. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there as well, but it can move the hearts and minds in a way that compels action. You know, I can think of uh, several key uh, documentaries that inspired people that I know in my own life to make changes in every way in, in how they you know, grow gardens, they stop eating animals, they are now like animal activists. You know, these things can really um, tell a story and connect with us emotionally in, in ways that other information can't, you know, as you said, again, the science is out there, but seeing a pig or cow suffering is going to be something that's hard to forget. It's going to lodge in your mind. And um, we are disconnected from how food is produced, you know, how it gets on our plate. And so I do think that movies can tell that story, but unfortunately, they can also misdirect people. So there's the um, Kiss the Ground documentary, which gets close, but, you know, misdirects people. And I'm running into people so frequently in my life where people say, oh, what do you do? You do sustainable food? Have you seen this documentary? And I have to go, yes, I have seen this documentary. I know what you're going to say. And let me correct you, you know, that cows are not necessary 
for, you know, the manure is not necessary in order to produce food. We don't need more cows. We don't need this many cows. And this is not a biodiversity solution to just no-till or add cover crops and that kind of thing. It's more complicated than that. So that's a, yet another long rambling answer, but, you know, for sure, I think the media has an influence on us for better and for worse and getting our story out there as much as possible about the connections between nature and farming and human communities and animal ethics and health and, you know, everything. It's all one kind of answer, right? There's all one, one just humane food system that we're working towards. And it does solve um, all of these things in different ways if we do it right. So I, I think, yeah, it's important to get that story out there, which is why I try to write so many op-eds and articles. And I think other activists do as well. We just want to kind of really you know, educate people and provide more information and, and correct misinformation where we see it. So that's a constant, constant battle. Yeah, it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? Yeah. And um, the so do you guys uh, are promoting, I guess, do you do you write is somebody there writing about specifically veganic, like how to do veganic agriculture? We're not doing specifically veganic, but, um, you know, I'm in many other groups that are focusing on that. But yeah, I've, I've engaged with people who are like, plant based food advocates from the, coming from health, for example, um, and other fields, but they say, well, we do need some animal agriculture, right? Like we do need some of them, right? Like there's this, just, this is just this idea out there that you see so often from so many people that really believe that we need to farm animals in order to survive. And that's pervasive and it's, it's hard to walk away. There are some people, you know, subsistence people, uh, farming and, you know, fishing and that kind of thing. But by and large, that's not true. So I'll do work in that right now. I'm putting together a website about myths about grazing, and livestock grazing, cattle grazing, sheep grazing, where we do take on um, other solutions. Veganic is one solution as well, of course. And um, yeah, I'm on the board of a local group where we're really promoting veganic farming as a solution. And it's so, it's so interesting. Um, it's so interesting, the opportunities. And we're doing that as a way of sort of trying to protect a local watershed. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I live in a place where there's rainforests. And uh, I mean, there's nothing but diversity in the rainforest. And the soil is rich and beautiful. And there's no animal agriculture going on there. Right? I mean, the most the most um, depleted soil is in animal agriculture zones, right? So it's very interesting, this distance. Right, to, yeah. to produce livestock at this large, or I should say farmed animals, cows and sheep, cows specifically, at this large scale and to feed them, you know, with our climate and particularly where I live in the West, which is arid landscape and we're in a drought and we're gonna have more and more severe droughts as we continue because of climate change. This is not the landscape that these animals evolved with. They're not meant to eat all this. You can't just put them out to pasture and therefore it's all good and they're going to eat some grass and save the planet. This needs irrigation. It needs supplemental feed crops. Many of the systems that rely on for animal agriculture that are industrial, the mass majority of them, you know, 99%, um, also need feed crops there in the feedlot model. 
So we grow these crops, we drench them with pesticide, completely destroy the soil um, for years to come. And the idea that that is necessary in order for us to survive is just simply misguided, but it's what we've been taught and normalized all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And it, it's going to take an interaction with uh, the truth, with a correction in order for that to be you know, corrected on a wide scale. And so the question is, how do we, how do we correct that notion that somehow we need animals to produce food. We need farmed animals to produce food. It's just something people people assume that even if you chose not to eat those animals, we somehow still need them to grow other crops. And really, what we need is pollinators. So um, yeah, we need to question a lot of assumptions. And I think over the past year, a lot of people have started challenging and questioning a lot of different assumptions. And I think maybe that will continue. Unfortunately, that means we've also lost trust in a lot of our sources too, which can be a scary feeling. Well, or certainly um, we're questioning how much we should trust and that, and maybe realizing that it's okay to ask some important questions, you know, and not just take everything at face value, right? Mm -hmm. So I hope, I mean, I saw a tweet yesterday that said this is, this, this is going to be the greatest when we look back on this, it's going to be the greatest time of human awakening in our history. And one can hope, you know, it's one thing or the other, either that or we go extinct. I mean, one of those two things will happen, I guess. Um, I'm looking at the screenshot behind you and this beautiful wolf that has a tracking device on it, I guess. They have deer. We have kind of urban deer where I live and they, they put those. I think that's what it is. It's a tracking device. Is that a real picture? Yeah. Um, which wolf is this? Beautiful. Yeah, it's one of our Lassen wolves. Um, it's come down from Oregon. There's a wolf right now that I'm really not this wolf, but there's another one, um, OR 93, that I'm following that's just so exciting. This wolf has come from Northeast Oregon, um, down through California, down across through the West back you know to the east to the west and back and now it's in the western part of southern california which is like a thousand miles more than a thousand miles and this wolf has crossed interstates it's gone through ranching territory of people who hate wolves and just keeps going and so yes the wolf is being tracked Um, i know there's a lot of controversy about the collar but at the same time it's allowing people to connect to the wolf as an individual being and follow the story of this wolf and understand that the conflicts that are going on and the threats to the wolf and the beauty of living in an environment where wolves can survive. I think one of the key indicators of a healthy ecosystem is, are there carnivores? Are there wolves? That is a great system of an ecosystem that's doing okay. Uh, And is there, do we know why the wolf has, has moved like that? I guess habitat destruction in Oregon? Some of the time, these wolves are following um, ancient trails. They go a long way to find a family, to find a mate. They mate for life, and they, um, as long as their mate is alive, and they build their family and they grow their pack, which is basically just a family. And they go a long way to do so, and they migrate and they move through the seasons. That's how they find food, and that's how they survive. So this is um, not necessarily habitat destruction it's a good thing for wolves to move around and it's it's them you know sort of filtering out 
through their ancient ecosystems. And so it's just wonderful to see. Cool. And with the tracking, is there an element of protection for the wolf then, do you think? It goes both ways. It's controversial. It goes both ways. People feel like um, as we're tracking the wolf and we're reporting where the wolf is, you know, it can put the wolf in harm's way from those who would do harm to the wolf. And so the Department of Fish and Wildlife tends to be very vague about where the wolf is. They work with the local ranchers and say, like, look, a wolf might be in your territory. We're taking care of it. You don't need to go vigilante on this. It's going to be fine. So that's a hard job. But then they also don't tell the public specifically where the wolf is. Um, but kind of people paying attention, get, you know, you have a, a good idea or maybe you go out and track a wolf. Like, how exciting is it to bring a child out and look for wolf prints, which I've done before. And it's just a wonderful thing to be able to do when we didn't have wolves uh, when I was growing up. They haven't returned for a century, and now here they are struggling to come back. We have several um, families that are struggling. We lost the Shasta pack, but this Lassen pack and, and its uh, descendants are doing, doing okay. So there's multiple views on the, on the collar. I don't like to see a wild animal with a collar. It's hard to see, but I also know that I'm just so rooting for this wolf to survive and, and all of, um, hopefully this future family. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know with the deer, it was it came sort of came down to calling them was what was on the table. And, um, and so the alternate suggestion was to um, was birth control, basically, which of course they do to the female. And, uh, and of course, a lot of people didn't didn't like that idea either. But it's better than culling like, you know, unfortunately, in these urban settings, Sometimes we have to make those compromises, right? So they it's get true that. of, you know, mountain lions, wolves, um, so forth. The, as we spread out with our urban development and go into their territory, they have less and less territory. So, of course, they're going to come down. Also, as climate change worsens, of course, they're going to come down. So there's a big push not only to make people less afraid. I mean, wolves and, and bears and mountain lions, they're not going to harm people. It just almost never happens. It's not what they're after, uh, believe it or not. And so try to calm down that reaction, try to figure out how to, you know, encourage people getting excited about this, but also to build wildlife corridors. That's policy that we're really pushing for to, to restore and conserve land so that um, there can be connectivity between places. So like this wolf, for example, can't just stay up in the hills somewhere, this wolf needs to migrate as do bison, as you know, as do large cats and so forth. They need to move around a little bit. Large cats have smaller territories, but some of these animals have big territories. Bison, for example, in the Yellowstone National Park, you can't just expect that they're gonna stay in the park. Of course, they're gonna move outside the boundaries, right? So you need to have a buffer zone. And currently there are people waiting with guns right on the boundary of the park to, to pick off, not bison particularly, but wolves. And so, we need to stop, I think, first of all, giving the animal agriculture industry, which doesn't really do great things for people or the planet, stop giving so much uh, priority in wildlife policy. Like, why, why would they be more important than the survival of bison and wolves that the majority of people want to survive and thrive? So, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, wildlife connectivity and corridors are very important, as well as crossings over interstates and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. 
Cool. And, uh, well, there's no end to the work that you get to do there at the Center for Biological Diversity. Jennifer, can you tell us what else you're working on? And is there anything else you want to say before we go? Yeah, you know, ultimately, I, I hope that my job is put out of existence. Like, I hope that we don't need my job. That would be my best future, um, is that we have this just food system where we no longer need people fighting for sustainable food. Um, you can learn more about the work that I do at takeextinctionoffyourplate.com or earthfriendlydiet.com. the same. I write that Food X newsletter where you can kind of learn about some of the greenwashing that's going on and some of the future trends that are positive. And, you know, if you're curious about what you want to eat, um, what's more sustainable, what's, you know, the best kind of option, where that comes down, I often share a lot of resources, that kind of thing. Uh, continue to work on all of the things that I'm talking about. We just launched a wool report that people might be interested in called Sheer Destruction. We love this title, right? We're always into puns. But Sheer Destruction exposes the environmental cost of wool. We often talk about like the animal you know, welfare aspect of wool um, or the en environmental cost of like beef, for example, or sheep meat, you know. But the fashion industry bears responsibility too. So we're calling on brands and designers to start phasing out wool and instead invest in alternative materials that are better for animals and the planet. And you can learn about that at sheerdestruction.com. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks uh, so much for taking the time today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Our guest today was Jennifer Molidor from the Center for Biological Diversity. You can find more Plant Powered Radio by visiting us on YouTube and Odyssey and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. If you appreciate these alternative views and you're able to support my work as an independent journalist, please consider a donation via PayPal, Patreon, or LiberaPay. Please continue to be safe and free and considerate towards all species, and thanks so much for listening. encircles the earth for all beings everywhere.